Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. Uh, we are going to be this morning, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke uh, chapter 23, or as we like to say in our, in our church, if you want to turn your Bible on, uh, you can do that as well. Um, or if you don't have a Bible, it's totally cool. We're going to have it up on the screen uh, for you. Um, our church has been going through a series which we call Tetelestai. Um, that's just a fancy way for a pastor to make himself feel good that he knows a word that most of the people in the congregation don't. It's the only way I feel superior to our people because the rest of them are way better than me. Um, Tetelestai is a Greek word which means it is finished. And so as a church, we're sort of moving towards Easter and we're looking at seven statements that Jesus makes on the cross. And one of those statements is tetelestai, it is finished. And so we just called it that. But today what we're going to do is we're going to actually look at the first two statements that Jesus makes on the cross. And so if you know a little bit of the the Jesus story, um, Jesus basically comes onto the scene and Jewish people are quite threatened by Jesus. He's healing people, he's doing miracles, and he's preaching with a lot of authority, and they want to get rid of Jesus, and so they get this plan to crucify him. Um, And so basically they capture Jesus around midnight, Um, they essentially beat him up, Um, they put him through a series of different trials, and so he, he doesn't get to eat, he doesn't get to sleep, he doesn't get to drink, he doesn't get to see friends and family. He's put through a series of hard times where they are beating him, mocking him, spitting on him. And then what the Bible gives us in the account of Luke um, and the account of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John is these, these pictures, these little statements that he says while he's hanging on the cross. And they're, they're absolutely phenomenal when you consider what he's been through. So what we want to do this morning is we want to just have a look at what Luke says that Jesus said. So um, when I was becoming a Christian, I was, I was reading the Bible and I was a little unsure of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. These are the first four books of what we call the New Testament and they seem to sometimes contradict each other. But when you, when you follow the story, what you find is actually they don't contradict each other. Luke is writing to a certain audience, Matthew is writing to a certain audience, Mark is writing to a certain audience and so they include or exclude certain parts of the story depending on what part benefits what they're trying to do. And so when you put them together, what they actually do is they complement each other. So if you read Luke, you're going to see that he doesn't add all the seven statements of Jesus. But when you put Matthew's account, Mark's account, Luke's account and John's account together, we see that Jesus has seven statements. And so if you are here and you're new or you're fairly new to Creekside, we've, I've brought a few journals for you. We did this in our church. We've got some people who like to take notes. Uh, they're a little bit on the nerd sort of scale, and that's fine. I'm a bit of a nerd myself. Um, if you are like, how do I find these seven statements? Instead of trying to go through the whole Bible, these are going to be out in the deck for you. These actually have the seven statements of Jesus. So you can just flick through these, read them. It's really easy. It's got some info on there about the crucifixion. It's got some info on there about the different trials. You can go through that. But today I just want to look at the first two. Is that okay? So I'm going to read uh, this passage and then we'll look at what it has to say. So this will come up on the screen for you. It says this, it says, Two others, so this is two others aside from Jesus, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with Him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Him and the criminals, one on His right and one on His left. I love this. This is Jesus' first statement hasn't slept, hasn't eaten, has been beaten, had his beard ripped out, 
He's been mocked and spat on. This is the first thing Jesus says while hanging on the cross. Father. First thing he does is speaks to his Father. And look what he says for us. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. And if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Verse 39 says, One of the criminals who was hanged railed him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do, not, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. In life, as you kind of get a little bit older, you find that uh, time kind of runs out on you. Um, sometimes it's t- too late for you. So an example for me was a few weeks ago, I was in a netball grand final. That alone, that alone's funny, all right? You're already mocking me, okay? It's okay, I'll be like Jesus and just stay on the cross and forgive you. Um, I was at a netball grand final. My son's a super athlete, and so I brought him to our grand final. I just, I just wanted my son to be proud of me. And I was, I was talking up the whole way in the car, like, man, I'm going to smash these people. I'm going to shoot real good. And, uh, and he was like, Dad, you're going to be awesome. And three minutes into the grand final, bang, grade two tear of the calf. So rather than my son seeing me be the hero, he sees me on the ground holding my calf going, ah, ah. And it was in that moment, I accepted the fact that I'm a middle-aged man. <laughs> the netball career is too late for me. It is over. The glasses weren't enough to tell me that, that I can't read things without glasses. Uh, for some of us, we, re- we realize this. It's too late to get toilet paper. It's all gone. <laughs> it's gone. There is no more. You need to pray for a miracle from the miracle worker who will give you toilet paper. But in life, you also learn that some things, it's not too late. It's never too late to say sorry. It's never too late to go and make right with people. And in this story, what Luke is trying to do, Luke's writing to a non-Jewish audience, people who don't know the Jewish way, the Jewish customs, they don't know the story of Jesus, and what he wants to write to them is the story of who Jesus is to tell them it's never too late to turn to Jesus. So he gives them this story that Jesus is on the cross offering forgiveness, making forgiveness possible, and it's never too late to turn to him. It's never too late. You can always turn to God. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to walk through just three things that we see the criminals say, three ways I think Jesus responds to that, that will help us to kind of get the most out of what I believe Luke is trying to get across to his audience. So the the first thing that we probably don't pick up in Luke's account, that Matthew and Mark's account pick up, is Matthew and Mark include in their account the fact that the criminals were also ones that were mocking. So in this story, did you notice how much mocking is going on? There's ridicule, there's a sign above his head mocking, oh, he's the king of the Jews, he's the king of the Jews, if you're so good, save yourself. It, It doesn't tell us in Luke's account 
that the criminals also participated in that, but we do get that in Matthew and Mark's account. And so we know that this criminal who's hanging on the cross, who seems to turn to Jesus, at some point wasn't a Jesus guy. He was anti-Jesus. He mocked Jesus. He didn't believe in Jesus. But something happens along the way where he turns from being someone who mocks Jesus and actually turns to Jesus and asks Jesus to save him. Now, it's speculation on my part. We don't know. None of the accounts tell us what happened or why he changed his heart. But personally, as I read the story, I think it's something to do with the fact that Jesus was just getting insult after insult after insult after insult and was just calm and didn't retaliate. Think about it. How long would it take for you to have retaliated? No one likes to be criticized. No one likes to be, you know, when someone goes at you at Facebook, like, it doesn't take you too long. I mean, it, you don't even have to go at me at Facebook. You just have to not like my post and I'm angry at you. <clears throat> I've seen that. You've seen it. I hate that about Facebook. Facebook lets you know that somebody's seen it and then the fact that they haven't liked it or commented. Why do you do that to me, Facebook? It hurts my feelings all the time. I'm a very insecure man. It just reinforces, nobody likes your comments. But Jesus doesn't retaliate. Jesus stays calm. Jesus stays in complete control. And that's because Jesus knows who he is and what he is doing on the cross. He doesn't need to prove himself because he is there to get to offer forgiveness for everybody. So he doesn't need to retaliate. So my personal belief is somewhere along the way, he's just watched Jesus and going, this guy is not like the rest of us. There's something different about this guy. And so the criminal has changed. So let's look at the criminal. Let's look at the three things that he does. Okay, the first thing is the criminal admits. He says in verse 40, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. The criminal is acutely aware of his brokenness. Now, he's not just a thief. Okay, a thief in their day doesn't mean he just stole a Kit Kat from Woolies. Okay, what it means is he literally went around and beat people, flogged them and took their food. Someone would be walking on their way home to feed their family. The criminal, the thief, would be the one that would beat them, take their food. And so in this culture, they were, they were not, not, not well liked. And somewhere along the way, he's gone, yeah, that is me. Now, as adults, I mean, I've got four children. It's children as well. But I think often we think it's only kids. We don't like admitting when we're wrong. Uh, I've been married uh, 17 years, nearly 18 years. hate admitting when I'm wrong to my wife. And in fact, I still don't. (laughs) Uh, Because I've realized after 18 years, I'm always wrong. So just don't even worry about it. Uh, it's hard. We don't, we, don't like to, we don't like the sense that maybe we're broken, maybe not everything's all together, and so that's a hard thing for us to accept. And I think part of the reason that we struggle with that is because the Bible story itself would tell us we weren't made to be wrong. We were actually made to be right. We were made to be in a right relationship with God. We were made to be in a right relationship with each other. We were made to be right in and of ourselves, but the Bible tells us that sin has broken that, that there is a fracture between us, and now something is wrong. And so the Bible calls this concept sin, that sin has broken things. And even today in our, in our current culture, it can be hard for us, maybe if we're not Christians in the room, or you're not a church person, to think, well, why do I need forgiveness? 
I'm not that bad. Like, I'm not like the, the criminal. I haven't done these, these bad things. And so I want to give you just a couple of metaphors that the Bible gives us, a couple of ways it talks about God and the relationship that's broken that may help you to just understand a little bit more. So, for example, the Bible speaks of God as being a creator. That is, that God designed all of us in this room, made us and gave us value, dignity, worth, meaning and purpose. He designed us to live a certain way. So in this sense, sin is us going to other things to find our value, dignity and worth. So we get it from our job, we get it from what we earn, where we live, how we dress. They're the things in our culture that make us feel good about ourselves. And what God wants to say is, listen, you can have those things. Those things are morally neutral, nothing right or wrong with them. But you have value, dignity, and worth because I'm the creator, I'm the designer, and I made you. Another way is that God is king or judge, and so we can see it as being something of rebellion and saying no to God's ways. Another way the Bible speaks of God is that He is holy, that He is set apart, He is absolutely pure. So in all of His intentions, and in all of His actions, God is always pure. Can we just be honest and say, that's not us? That sometimes our actions aren't pure, sometimes our intentions aren't pure. Another one, and this is the, the last two are really helpful for me, is God is a Father. But we don't know Him as a Father. We see Him as a distant being somewhere out there away. And God is like, no, 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 no. I'm a dad who wants to be close and near. Another one is that God is a shepherd. And so the picture is that we're just sheep wandering away from God. We're just, we're just not aware of Him and we're not listening to Him. These are all different ways that the Bible speaks of what the problem is. And what Jesus is doing on the cross is He is trying to make forgiveness possible for us so that we can be the sheep that comes back to the shepherd, so that we can be the sons and daughters who come back to the Father. So the Bible's goal when it talks about sin is not to heap shame and guilt and to rub our faces in it. It's actually the opposite. It's to take it away so it's not the thing defining you, not the thing controlling you, but your past no longer defines you, your, your sin no longer defines you. What defines you is your relationship with God. That's what the Bible is trying to do. Some, I should say many years ago, got to get used to saying that these days, many years ago, uh, I was in school, I was 12, and uh, some stuff was going on in my life that wasn't that great, and at this point in time, my parents were, were pastors in a church, and that church was connected to a school, so kind of a similar setup to this, so everyone knew my parents, and everyone knew me. It was great. Uh, we were known as the Lewises, and uh, I found a way to really defame the name. So what I was doing as a young entrepreneur is I was distributing adult magazines throughout the school. And I was stealing them, making some money from them. And then one day, one of these magazines ended up on the principal's desk, to which some of my good friends were quick to throw me under the bus and let that principal know exactly who was responsible. And I just remember, I'd never felt anything like this before. I just remember the amount of shame and guilt that came over me. It wasn't just that I was afraid to go and see a principal. I was so afraid that I would have to see my father. And that my father would know me, know this part of my life that I never wanted him to know. And that I'd brought shame upon his entire name. 
So uh, my friend and I, we, we got a plan. Instead of going on the bus that I'd normally go to home, I hopped on a bus and went to his home. He had acreage. And in acreage, he had this massive uh, cubby house. And so the plan was, I'm going to live there for the rest of my life. That <laughs> was the plan. Okay, you're 12. You haven't thought lots of things through. So I go up there, climb up the ladder, I'm up there, and then, you know, eventually he brings me a pillow, he brings me a sleeping bag, he starts sneaking me out dinner, and on the fourth visit, I'm expecting, I don't know, moose, chocolate Bavarian, and what I get is his mother's voice. And she's climbed up, and I'm whimpering and cowering, and she's like, hi, Kylum. I'm like, this is not good. This is not the plan. And then she tells me that my father is here and he's just he's waiting for me downstairs. I was so afraid of my dad. I did not want to see my dad. I didn't want to look my dad in the eye. I was so scared of what my dad would say to me. And so I climbed down these stairs in absolute trepidation. You know what my dad did? He didn't say a word. He grabbed me, put his arms around me and brought me near. Because the most important thing to my father was that I was home. And that I was safe. And despite what I had done, more important to him than anything was to have me. And he knew that if he would just rail at me, or he was just going to heap more shame on me. So yes, stuff had to get dealt with. Yes, we had to talk through some things, but he brought me near. This is what God is doing through Jesus on the cross. He's trying to make a way available for you to come and be brought near to God. And so he knows he's going to face his maker. He's aware that death is not the end, that death is a transition to meeting his maker, and he's ignored God all of his life, but now he is no longer ignoring him. He is looking to Jesus. So he admits. The second thing is he acknowledges. So he says, And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man, speaking of Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong. Now that word nothing there, he's not just saying he hasn't committed treason as the Romans are accusing him of, and he hasn't committed blasphemy as the Jews are accusing him of, that he's, he's innocent of those crimes. He's not saying he's not as bad as us. What he's saying is he is pure innocence. He's watched him on the cross. He's watched him through this whole process, and he is seeing this man is not like us. The word literally there in Greek, which is the language that was written in, means this man is out of place. He is not like us. He's more than a mere man. That's what he's saying. This guy is different. This guy is unlike us. Jesus is more than simply a man. He is an innocent man. He is a pure man. He is a holy man. He is distinct from us. And so he's not only admitting his own brokenness, he's admitting who Jesus is, and he's seeing him, and he's turning to him. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. This is how we talk of Jesus. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you, you might wonder why that's important for us, but it's important for us because the only person who could offer forgiveness is one who is free of sin. So the fact that Jesus is without sin is hugely important because He is taking on sin as one who is innocent of it and then He is giving us His record of righteousness, meaning His right living goes to our account and we can be made right with God. And the third thing He does is He asks. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see, for this man, it's too late to redeem himself, right? 
He's literally going to be dead in hours. He has no time to fix himself up. He has no time to get a better record that he can offer to Jesus and say, hey, look, I'm a pretty good guy. He has no time. The only thing he has time to do is just turn to Jesus and put his faith in him and trust him. That's all he has time to do. Luke is telling us it's not too late to turn to Jesus. If you're here and you are not a church person, you're not a Christian, it's not too late. You can turn to Jesus today. You can put your faith in Him today. You don't have to get yourself all sorted. You can just simply trust in Him. And then I love how Jesus responds. First thing we see with Jesus is that He speaks with authority. So Jesus says, truly I say to you. Now this word truly here, it's this authoritative word. It's like, I'm saying this. I have the authority to speak on behalf of God. So in many ways, Jesus is just affirming, what you're seeing in me is right. You are acknowledging who I am. Jesus is affirming, yes, I'm the one with the authority to forgive sins and I'm here to forgive them. Second thing, he speaks with assurance. I don't know if you noticed, but the, the criminal goes, when you come into your kingdom, there's a sense of, I don't know when, I don't know how. And Jesus says, today, you will. It's like, this is happening. This is happening now. So not in the future, sometime after you've worked off all your bad deeds, not next year, after you've really thought this through and made sure you're really committed, Not a little later when you've cleaned yourself up and presented yourself a little better. Not down the road when your theology and all your knowledge and understanding of the Bible and God and church is all sorted. And not a little later when you know how to speak Christianese and say, bless you, brother. Bless you, sister. And instead of saying, hey, do you want to come to my house and have have a hangout time or have a barbecue or whatever? And you use the word, hey, do you want to come and have some fellowship, which is just weird. Okay, Christians, we use weird words. I don't know why we do that. I prefer just to, hey, you want to come hang out? Okay, but some Christians like to rub backs and, hey, bless you. You want to come have fellowship? It's weird. Okay, God doesn't want you to have to have all of that stuff sorted before you come to Him. In fact, Jesus is saying, you don't have to. You don't have to dress the right way, look the right way, speak the right way, have it all worked out. In fact, I've been a Christian for nearly 20 years the longer I walk with God, the less I realize I've got it all worked out. The more I walk with God, the more I realize I'm not as together as I thought I was. And so you walk with God and it's, it's this sense of like you get more of a realization who you are, but you also get more of a realization who He is and you're confident alone in Him. That He is good, that He is kind, that He's all together and that's enough for me. So Jesus is saying to this guy, assuring him that this is happening. And I love the fact that it's instant, right? It's not once you sort of fix a few things. Think about this. This guy does not have enough time to hop off the cross and come to church today. He doesn't have enough time to come and go to an alpha course. He doesn't have enough time to then go and get water baptized. He doesn't have enough time to then join a community group. He doesn't then have enough time to commit to serving at Creekside Community Church. He doesn't have time to do any of the things that we associate with what it means to be a Christian. And that's because those things don't make you a Christian. 
Those things are a part of being a part of the church and learning and growing. What makes you a Christian is you put your faith in Jesus. That's it. Christianity is simple. It's not complicated. You trust in Jesus. And you ask Him for forgiveness and He lavishes it on you. Non-Christian, non-church person in the room, you don't have to have everything figured out. You don't have to have it all sorted. If you believe in Jesus, you can ask Him and He will freely forgive you and welcome you in and as a father, put His arms around you. Doubting Christian. Maybe you're doubting God loves you. Maybe you're doubting God can forgive you. Maybe some years ago you you accepted that and now you're struggling with that because you're still wrestling with stuff that's going on in your life. Where's your faith? Trust in Jesus. I like to give an example at our church of what faith is like because I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to have huge faith. Like everyone looks at me and thinks, man, you know everything. I know nothing. And I constantly ask myself, why are people coming to our church? I know nothing. I I have very little faith. And often as a pastor, I feel like I'm supposed to have more faith. I'm supposed to sort of model to our church what it looks like to have heaps of faith in God. Does anyone here have very little faith? Yeah, getting a few, few nods. Here's how I think uh, faith works. Faith is only as strong as the object it's put in. So an illustration that may help you with this. Let's say you and your family, you go, you do a trip to New Zealand. And you're going to go snowboarding, you're going to do the Remarkables... It's beautiful, it's amazing. And then you're going to go over to Queenstown and the goal is that you're going to eventually do the bungee jump. And all your mates are there like, do it, do it, do it. You're like, yeah, I, I am going to do it. I am going to do it. No, 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 do it. Yeah, no, I am, I am. And then you get up there like, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, no, I'm going to do it though. I'm going to do it, you know. And, you, and you're freaking out. And then you don't know, but there are two bungee jump, uh, bungee jump cords that you can choose. One of them is attached. One of them is not. You don't know. They don't tell you. You're like, why are we talking about this? This sounds horrible. (laughs) Stay with me. What if you have all the faith in the world and you're like, I'm going to go to this one and it's not attached? You're like, I know it. I'm 100% sure. You've got even signs and signals like your boy's like, yeah, man, yeah, man, you do it. You're like, I am doing it. I'm going with this one. It doesn't matter how much faith, doesn't matter how much confidence, doesn't matter how much faith you put in that bungee uh, jump cord, it's not connected which means your faith is going to do nothing for you. It's going to go bad. But you might be like, I'm not sure. I still have doubts. But I'm going this way. And I'm choosing this one. You can have minuscule, tiny faith that's up and down and all over the place and it's not all sorted and you're not super confident, but you just, you just, this is what faith is like. You're just going to go towards God. And it's connected. The Bible would say, faith that is put in Jesus is secure because it is connected. Jesus connects us to God. So if you put little faith, teeny faith, I'm not 100% sure, I don't have all this thing figured out, that's okay because your faith is in God. Your faith is in Jesus, which makes your faith strong. Because faith is only as strong as the object it's put into. And this man is saying, I don't have it all figured out. I don't have time to sort this out. All I know is you're different. And I'm going to reach out in faith and ask you to forgive me and bring me into your kingdom. 
And I love the way Jesus finishes. He finishes with this, this, this word, this, this, the way he's talking is one of affection. And Jesus says, today you will, but listen to these next words, be with me in paradise. See, for those of us in the room who maybe we're not Christians, maybe we're not church people, we have this view of God that God is distant. If He exists, then He sure doesn't care. That He's far away, He's abdicated, He's not involved. Luke is saying, no, 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 Jesus is near. The point of offering forgiveness, the point of going to the cross is to bring you to be with Him. Even this word paradise, it's, it's a Persian term. So Persian kings would use this to talk. It was, it was this idea of it's this precious walled garden. And so a Persian king, if they had a subject who was doing something well in his kingdom, they would bring them in and you would have the opportunity to walk with the king in the garden with the king. And so the Jews picked up on this term and they used it to kind of, it's almost like to point them back to the beginning of the story. So at the very, very beginning of the Bible story, God creates all things, and then He creates Adam and Eve, these, these human beings, and He puts them in the garden. And Genesis, the very, very beginning of the Bible, tells us that He walked with them in the cool of the day. That God and man, God and women, we were together, we were connected, we were with God. But then sin broke that. And so what this is, is a picture of Jesus is making things right again, and He's bringing us back into the garden where you and I can walk with God, know God, talk to God, because He has made forgiveness possible for us. And Jesus is saying, you will be with me in paradise. You will walk with me, know me. I love this about God, because this is showing us that God isn't just this distant being who's telling us how to live. He's not just giving us a bunch of rules and a bunch of regulations. What he's saying is, listen, I want to get you and bring you home so that you can know me. God is personal. God is relational. God is affectionate. So as the band come up, I love that at the end of this, this man is having his life completely changed. No longer is his identity in his past, in the things that he has done, and he's got a history of things that he's done. His identity now, the way that he is now being seen in himself, is that he is knowing God. He is with God. The very meaning, the very purpose, the very value of his life is now being defined by Jesus, which is awesome. You might be a church person, maybe you're not a church person. Regardless, we all live in this culture which is trying to tell us how we get value, how we get meaning, how we get purpose, how we get value and dignity and worth as human beings. And what God is saying, listen, that comes from me. And I want to forgive you and bring you home. And you can live a life that is different, life that is filled with grace purpose, meaning, value. I love what Jesus said in John 17, 3. He said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. 
You see, when I was growing up, I thought to be a Christian meant to go to heaven where you'd get maybe your own cloud. You get a harp thing, and you know, if you're lucky, you got a bow and arrow so you could shoot it back down to earth to the people you didn't like. You know, that was kind of my view. I was like, man, I don't want the harp, I want that thing so I can get my brothers back. That's, that's not what Jesus is doing. What Jesus is saying is, no, no, no. To be a Christian isn't to just go somewhere. It's to know someone. It's to be put back in a right relationship with God where the shame and the guilt no longer sticks to you anymore. It no longer controls you. It no longer defines you. It is gone. So the Psalms talk about the fact that when Jesus forgives us of our sins, it's like they're covered in snow. If you've ever seen snow, my wife and I went to New Zealand a few years ago and we were eating at a table one night. We went to bed. Next night we got up and it had been snowing all night. And we just had like talks and conversations and we came out, we could not even see the table and chairs anymore. They were covered in snow. And that was a picture. It's the picture. It's what it looks like to be forgiven. You are covered. You are washed clean. You are free for the rest of your life. And you can walk with God. And this is what Jesus is offering. And remember, Luke is writing this to people after Jesus' time who aren't Jews, aren't Christians. And he's writing them to say, this is what God offers you. You too can be forgiven, like the thief on the cross. You too can experience forgiveness. How? The same way the criminal did. We just admit we need God, and we turn, and we look to Him, and we say, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Forgive me. And Jesus freely offers you that today. Let's pray. Oh, God, you are so good. You are so kind. Jesus, that you would go to a cross and despite all the mocking, all the beatings, all the people just accusing you and cursing at you and spitting on you, you just stayed true. And you stayed because you knew why you were there. You were there to offer forgiveness to any who would believe. Jesus, you've made that available to all of us today. And there are some of us in the room, we've never asked for it before. We've never turned to you as our Savior who would forgive us of our sin and make us right with God. Would you help us to believe and trust in you today, Jesus? Got others in the room that have been Christians, but they're struggling with their shame and the guilt of how they're living, that they look at their lives and they're like, it's not up to scratch. You offer forgiveness. You offer freedom from shame and guilt. Lord, all of us in the room need to turn to you today. Christian, not Christian. Church person, not church person. We need to turn to you and receive your forgiveness that washes us and covers us like snow. And I thank you that you did this on the cross for us already. And then we can freely receive it. And I pray this in your name. And everybody said, Amen.